Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Clarabelle was a dairy cow. She was in New York. Dr. Holly Chivas tells this story. She had given birth to a calf, and the farmer noticed she was suckling this calf, uh, and then she was leaving, and she was going away and didn't know there was never any extra milk in her. And what turned out what she had done is she'd actually given birth to twins, but she knew that every year when she gave birth, cows have about the same pregnancy duration as a human woman, that calf was taken away from her because the farm, like all farms, wanted to have the milk so it could be churned, made into butter and cheese and yogurt and so on for human beings, and they didn't want the calf to drink it. So her beloved calf would be taken away every year. She, when she gave birth to twins, had to make a terrible decision, which one to hide and she had hidden one of the calves in the woods. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make, a literary magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid Newkirk is the founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, the largest animal rights organization in the world, with more than 6.5 million members and supporters worldwide. She is the author of more than a dozen books that have been translated into several languages, including Making Kind Choices, Everyday Ways to Enhance Your Life Through Earth and Animal-Friendly Living, The PETA Practical Guide to Animal Rights, Simple Acts of Kindness to Help Animals in Trouble, and The Compassionate Cook, or Please Don't Eat the Animals. Newkirk, a former Washingtonian of the year, has been featured for her work for animals in The New Yorker, Time Magazine, People Magazine, Forbes, The Financial Times, and numerous other publications. She has appeared on TV shows and podcasts all over the world, including Real Time with Bill Maher, The Rich Roll podcast, and Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. She is the subject of a BBC special and the HBO documentary, I Am an Animal. Ms. Newkirk's most recent book, co-written with Gene Stone, and with a foreword by Mayim Bialik. And the book under discussion today is 2020's Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion, published by Simon & Schuster. In the last few decades, a wealth of new information has emerged about who animals are, intelligent, aware, and empathetic. Studies show that animals are astounding beings with intelligence, emotions, 
intricate communication networks, and myriad abilities. In Animal Kind, Ingrid Newkirk and Gene Stone present these findings in a concise and awe-inspiring way, detailing a range of surprising discoveries. That geese fall in love and stay with a partner for life, that fish sing underwater, and that elephants use their trunks to send subsonic signals, alerting other herds to danger miles away. Newkirk and Stone pair their tour of the astounding lives of animals with a guide to the exciting new tools that allow humans to avoid using or abusing animals as we once did. They show readers what they can do in their everyday lives to ensure that the animal world is protected from needless harm. Whether it's medicine, product testing, entertainment, clothing, or food, there are now better options to all the uses animals once served in human life. We can substitute warmer, lighter faux fleas for wool, choose vegan versions of everything from shrimp to sausage and milk to marshmallows, reap the benefits of medical research that no longer requires monkeys to be caged in laboratories, and scrap captive orca exhibits and elephant rides for virtual reality and animatronics. Animal Kind is a fascinating study of why our fellow living beings deserve our respect, and moreover, the steps every reader can take to put this new understanding into action. Welcome, Ingrid, and thank you for joining us today. As a way to begin, I always ask my guests to tell our listeners a bit about themselves and the focus of their work. I've covered some of this in introducing you, and I think it's probably safe to say that most, if not all, of our listeners are familiar with PETA. But is there anything in addition that you'd like to share about yourself or your background? <laughs> well, I, I, like many people, I grew up loving animals, never thinking I could be cruel to them. But I hadn't connected the dots. So while I would never kick a dog or starve a horse, I certainly ate my way through the animal kingdom. And I had my first fur coat when I was 19. And I went deep sea fishing. I did all the bad things that I now look back in abject horror at. I bought things that were tested on animals and I had no idea they were. Because when I grew up, there wasn't the information about animal rights and animal suffering there is today. There was no internet. There were just very few opportunities to know. And everybody wanted a fur coat. But I had a number of experiences over the years that opened my eyes to what I was supporting. I was deeply ashamed and upset. And I thought I'd start this group so that I could help other people see what their buying choices meant for animals and give them opportunities. As I set out in Animal Kind, my book, is how you can make kind, compassionate choices every day of your life. And that's really all there is to it. The world is still a terrible place for animals, but I'm sure that the world looks quite different today than it did when you were first getting started. Oh, good Lord, yes. I mean, as I say, everybody, every young girl's dream was to have a fur coat, and today it's absolutely nothing anybody wants. Most of the big designers won't touch it anymore. It's not on the runways. It's not in the stores. And the same is now happening with, of course, other forms of animal skin and hide and wool is why would we ever want to look like or dress like cave people? We're not survivalists. So yes, there's now, you know, almond milk, oat milk, every kind of milk that you could have that comes from plants, no excuse anymore. Whereas once there was just cow's milk, that's all there was. So the calf was taken away from 
his mother so that we could have cheese. That, that's all gone. We've got vegan cheeses. We've got vegan everything. There isn't a taste you can't have that isn't in a vegan version these days. And experimentation, when we started, if you wanted to see if a woman was pregnant, you injected her urine into a rabbit, and if the rabbit died, you had your answer. I mean, all sorts of ridiculous things. We had dissection of cow's eyes, cats, all sorts of frogs in school. Today, most kids want a sin frog, which is a simulated frog or a computer program, and certainly you can get a litmus test thing that you take home, and in a matter of minutes, you know if you're pregnant or not. So lots of lots of has changed, and lots remains to be changed, as you said. Your book is not primarily a catalog of the horrors humans subject animals to. For the most part, it's an upbeat, positive exploration of the remarkable inner worlds of animals' minds and the new technologies humans have developed that allow us to advance human interests without abusing animals. So our discussion today will be mostly positive. However, as you write in your introduction, quote, for the most part, animals who have had contact with humans suffered through difficult lives and came to a bad end, end quote. And that is still definitely the case today. And it is this, it seems to me, that is the primary motivation for your book and for the work your organization, PETA, does. So I was wondering if we could begin by quickly walking through a few examples of our mistreatment of animals. Why should people care about how we're treating animals? Well, we need to care because we tell our children we're compassionate individuals. We tell our children that we should be kind to animals. And we think of ourselves as caring people. And we don't like uh, supremacist attitudes. We don't like oppression, we say. And we don't like bullying, we say. And we don't like needless violence and all these things. We don't like bigotry and prejudice. So if that's true, then to be true to ourselves, we have to be sure that we're not showing those things to others who just happen not to have been born human. And I say that because human supremacism is the biggest problem that animals, the other living beings who are just like us in feelings, emotions, and so on, are experiencing. We set ourselves up as if we're gods, and then we treat all the other living beings as if they're just here for us to use. They're hamburgers on the hoof. They're handbags that haven't had their skin taken off. You know, they're cheap burglar alarms. Or they're hours to use in dog races and horse races and all these other things, bullfights. And, and of course, we eat them, which is so revolting <laughs> once you become a vegan. What used to be attractive to you if you were ever a meat eater becomes such an amazing, stunning thing you can't believe you ever did because it involves taking, say, in Taiwan, a dog, I've been in those slaughterhouses, and dragging them in and stringing them up and cutting their throat to make a soup. And in this country, it means taking chickens, who are fabulous animals. I've rescued many and rehomed many. They each have individual personalities and take them and pigs and cows and put them in the cold, the freezing cold truck or the burning heat of the summer, and truck them down the highway. They're petrified. They've never been outside their barn in their life, not that that was a good experience either. 
And then you hang them up by their hind legs and slit their throats, and they're petrified. The fear is palpable in the slaughterhouse. And then there are the laboratories. We need to realize, no, it's not just a few animals being treated really nicely so we can have a cure for uh, devastating diseases. It's millions and millions of them, and they're used for every fool thing just to test a, a chemical that we already know has been in human use for years, or to take mother monkeys and infant monkeys and separate them from each other when they're just babies and just give the mother drugs and see if she gets upset or operate on her head and see if the baby recognizes that it's something wrong with their mother. I mean, you cannot imagine the rubbish that goes on in laboratories to millions of animals, and we must stop that. We have to wake up. We have a thing called the Research Modernization Deal. It's like the New Green Deal, but it's for laboratories. And we need to push our members of Congress, our legislators, everybody to say, give us modern science. Stop torturing animals. So in every facet, from clothing to food to laboratories to circuses, entertainments, animals are being treated not as if they are things, because it wouldn't matter. You don't treat things as badly as we treat animals who feel pain and who suffer so much and are so afraid. So we have to wake up to all that and then not just be angry or, or sad, but think, what can I do to change everything I'm doing, to change the companies that I buy things from? What can I do to change our government? And there are many things people can do. So we have to realize what's happening to animals. And Mark, if there's an animal in the equation, whether it's a woolly sweater, a leather shoe, or it's a cosmetic, Whatever it is, if there's an animal that's part of it, no, they are not volunteers. They didn't give up their time, their lives, their children, their skin for us and find an alternative. Even in terms of down and wool, which people perceive to be harmless, down feathers are live plucked. They are torn out of a living bird's body, often while the bird is held between the knees of a worker. The plucking rips the flesh and creates bloody wounds. And when the feathers grow back, the process is repeated. And Wool, you write that the speed with which the shearers work, quote, encourages fast and impatient work that can leave sheep with gaping bloody wounds, even cutting off teats, parts of ears, and in at least one case seen by investigators ripping open a sheep's penis, end quote. Yeah, it's it's funny, really. I mean, it would be funny because our job is to make sure people know. There's nothing like an informed consumer. And many people don't know. People say, oh, well, wolves, they don't kill the sheep, do they? And don't you have to shear a sheep? Well, the way sheep are bred these days to have extra, extra, extra wool, yes, you do have to shear them. But what happens is because of mass demand for wool, these huge conglomerates and all over Australia, which is the number one exporter of wool in the world, there are huge ranches full of sheep and they separate the mothers from the fathers from the infants and they shear them all. And because the shearers work, and I've stood there and watched them, they work so quickly 
because they are going to be paid by volume of wool, not by how well they shear. They lose their tempers. Many of them in Australia are on amphetamines, so they're working so fast. If that sheep struggles, and of course they will, because they are afraid for their lives, they're prey animals, they're being held down, they will stomp on their necks, they will smash them in the face with the metal clippers. They are moving so fast that they will cut off a teat or the end of an ear or other uh, bits and pieces of the sheep. And in the end, if you stand outside the shearing shed, you'll see those sheep shivering from stem to stern, every fiber of their, their body shaking. They are so traumatized and they will be cut to shreds. And I stood in Australia on the ranch in the shearing shed and out and watched it. We have been on every continent except Antarctica and only because there are no shearing sheds in, in Antarctica and been inside those sheds undercover and if anyone watches our video, they will never, ever, ever buy anything made of wool again. And that is what will stop it. As for feathers, yeah. I mean, we have been also in the feathering sheds where these poor geese are live plucked. I mean, they're grabbed by the neck, shoved between a worker's knees, and then their feathers are ripped out of their body. And they bleed. They have wounds. Sometimes they're stitched up because their wounds are so big with needle and thread and no painkiller at all. And then, like the sheep, you see them in the pens just huddling there and shaking and shaking. I mean, they, they've been in fear of their lives and now they're in pain. So, yeah, there are lots of things people need to... We're grown up. We need to open our eyes and see. Okay, with that behind us, Let's move on to what we've learned about animals over the past decades. There are many talents, languages, and complex cultures. You write, quote, Thanks to animal behaviorists like Conrad Lorenz, primatologists like Jane Goodall, Birute Galticas, Franz Duval, and Diane Fossey, undersea explorers like Jacques Cousteau and his family, and the thousands of animal rights activists who have been constantly and assiduously working to help animals, people's eyes are now open to who animals are, end quote. And the first section of your book explores some of the things we have learned about four different aspects of animal life, navigation, communication, love, and play. All are interesting, but let's focus on love. You begin your chapter on love by quoting the evolutionary biologist Mark Burkhoff, quote, to me, the evidence for animal emotions is impossible to deny, and it is widely supported by our current knowledge in animal behavior neurobiology, and evolutionary biology, end quote. I would imagine most listeners would have no trouble whatsoever in granting us that animals do have emotions. We see clearly that they do in our interactions with our pets and in documentary footage we have seen on TV and in the movies. In addition, our understanding of biology and evolution leads us to assume that they have emotions. The reason we have emotions is that we inherited those emotions from our animal relatives. So yes, Animals have emotions, and your book gives many moving examples of this. Could you give us an example or two of instantly recognizable expressions of love among non-human animals? Sure, absolutely. And of course, the examples abound. There's a little mouse called the California mouse, and you know the father mouse actually assists the mother in giving birth, and he's the one who gives the first bath to the newborns. 
he stays with her. Bats are very altruistic. And in fact, a bat will show love to another bat who's ailing by going out and getting fruit or whatever they eat. If they're fruit bats, it'll be fruit. Bringing it back and helping them by holding it while they eat. But my favorite one of all, I think, is pigeons. Pigeons are so derided, so unfairly. I mean, they didn't ask to be here. They were bought here. They are cliff-dwelling doves. And they are the most tender lovers in the world. I mean, yes, whales are, are also tender, and many animals are tender. But pigeons, they mate for life, which most birds do. You know, humans have a 34% divorce rate. The pigeons mate for life. They choose what I call their high school sweetheart and stay with them until their dying day, if they can, um, if they're not shot out of the sky or something. And they are so devoted. They share parenting duties absolutely equally. Both the mother and the father make milk for their baby in their crop and feed their babies. So I say, if you see a pigeon with their beak down another pigeon's beak, they could be feeding their baby, but because they're so romantic, they could be kissing. It's lovely. Your book is full of many tear-inducing stories, beautiful stories. The story of Dolly, the story of Clara Bell. Personally, I love the prairie vole. You quote Jennifer Verdolin as writing, when their partner is stressed, they give them the equivalent of prairie vole hugs and kisses, end quote. It's beautiful stuff. You're right about Dolly and Dolly 2 and Clarabelle. Those are cows for people who haven't read the book. Dolly and Dolly 2 were a mother and daughter, as you might surmise. And they had been separated. They weren't interested in each other. They had to get on with their own lives in this large pasture. Dolly 2, when she gave birth herself to a calf, she ran into difficulties. She couldn't get up. She was very ill. And when the farmer couldn't find her, couldn't find her anywhere, he finally found her three pastures away for the first time in years. She had sought out her mother, and her mother was looking after her through her difficulties. It was a, a reunion. After she got well again, off she went back to her own pasture and, and said goodbye to her mother. Clarabelle's story, I think, is really tragic as well as showing such wonderful emotion. Clarabelle was a dairy cow. She was in New York. Dr. Holly Chivas tells this story. She had given birth to a calf, and the farmer noticed she was suckling this calf, uh, and then she was leaving, and she was going away and didn't know there was never any extra milk in her. And what turned out what she had done is she'd actually given birth to twins. But she knew that every year when she gave birth, cows have about the same pregnancy duration as a human woman, that calf was taken away from her because the farm, like all farms, wanted to have the milk. So it could be churned, made into butter and cheese and yogurt and so on for human beings. And they didn't want the calf to drink it. So her beloved calf would be taken away every year. She, when she gave birth to twins, had to make a terrible decision, which one to hide. And she had hidden one of the calves in the woods. Now, most the mother cows on a dairy farm never see a wood. They never see a tree. They never see a pasture. They're kept indoors their whole lives. And, of course, they are powerless when 
the farmer comes to take the baby away. But Clarabelle had tried her best to hide one child so that only one would be taken away, which she knew was inevitable. So not only is that an extraordinary story of love, but it also gives us a window into the intelligence and understanding these animals have. Cows can anticipate the future. They are aware that their offspring are going to be taken away from them. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. I mean, I mean, they have, they're not tables and chairs. They have memories. They have interests. They have thoughts. They're just like us. And, you know, we may have handheld devices and we may have all these sophisticated things that remind us, alarm clocks and, you know, GPSs. They don't have any of that. But they've got their perception and their thoughts and their observations and their experiences and their memories. Even a little fish can remember for, we think, we know up to seven years, might be longer, but we know up to seven years. If he or she gets caught in a net and finds a way out, they'll know how to do it or not to get into the net again. Some people use animals' different intelligences as a way of rationalizing our treatment of them. But in fact, we share so much in common with them in terms of intelligence and emotions. So really what you would subtract is just the rational understanding of the situation they're in. You leave the rest. They're intelligent and they're emotional creatures, but they just don't understand why they are in this pen or why this person is cutting them. So they live in terror. They suffer greatly. The thing that they don't have is an understanding as to why all this is happening to them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's worse for them than it is for a human being because if, if you've got somebody going into surgery they know why they're going into surgery and they know what their prognosis is and what their chances are and they know they're going to wake up and, and so on. If, if something horrible is about to happen to you, you can be told about it. You know that there's a tornado or a hurricane coming. You've heard it on the news. You can, they are not told anything. There's no way you can impart to your dog that it's okay. I'm not taking you to the vet to torture you. you know, I'm immunizing you against something. So their horror is extreme. And as I mentioned with the sheep, so many of these animals who are prey animals, meaning that they live in fear of being predated upon, of being caught and of being killed, are treated by human beings as if that prey instinct doesn't exist. So they're caught up. You know, the geese are caught up to be live plucked. The sheep are held down to be sheared. You know, the cow going into the slaughterhouse is put through a chute. All these things mean, oh my God, I'm about to die. So the terror in the laboratory, they say that if a monkey or any other animal sees the knob on the door of the laboratory turning, that their heart rate goes up, their adrenaline, their everything starts, their pulses race because they know someone is coming in and the experience has never been good. So they live in a state of fear. I will also note that in a section of your chapter on love called Motherly Love, you write that, quote, leeches are devoted parents. Australian leeches are known to care for their young for many weeks after they hatch, carefully shuttling them to safe locations with few predators, end quote. It's something to think about. There's a tendency among people to privilege the feelings of certain species, dogs and cats, for example, um, 
perhaps certain other extraordinary cases, such as whales, big cats, while simultaneously disregarding others. And yet here we see that a creature as humble as a leech, and I do not mean the word humble in any judgmental fashion, but a creature as humble as a leech, and other smaller and less humanesque creatures also have their emotions and social structures and loves. Moving on to the second section of your book, which covers how we can conduct our lives happily and efficiently without having to exploit animals. You cover four specific areas of human life, science, clothing, entertainment, and food. You begin the section's chapters by giving some history, explaining the ways in which humans have historically and continue to exploit animals, and also recounting some of the history of the movement of humans towards recognizing animal rights. And then after you have given the history, you talk about new technological innovations that alleviate the need to abuse animals and suggest other things the reader can do to make the world a better place for animals. I thought we could begin with scientific research. Most listeners will likely not need convincing that they could get by without wearing leather or even eating meat or dairy products. It is, it's my hope that there are now enough vegans in the real world and in entertainment that most people have encountered one before and know that one can go vegan and not kill over dead within the week from malnutrition. Scientific research, however, is one of those areas where I would guess many would assume animal cruelty is still required, is a necessary evil. As you write, quote, you may be thinking, well, we don't need to eat or wear animals or put them in circuses, but don't we have to use animals if science is to advance and medicine is to cure diseases and save lives? No, we don't, end quote. And in fact, as you write, there's good reason to believe enlisting animals in medical experiments may actually do more harm than good to humans. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, I think people are mostly oblivious. They don't know very much about it. So they have a little mythology that's built up and it is called scientific research when a lot of it is absolutely not scientific. I sat one day in the back of a room at the University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, where they were talking to medical students about their experiments on animals. And the instructor said, we've got these forms to fill out for the government. Listen, you guys, will you stop putting where it says rationale for using this species? Things like, because they're cheap, easy to handle, no one cares about them when you're talking about rats and mice. Now, that's what was being put on the form because those are the reasons they were being used, not because that species would give us the answers that we need for human medicine. And the, the reason, of course, is that it's not science, it's convenience. What has happened during COVID-19 is we have found so many laboratories who are euthanizing their animals, every kind of species under the sun, because people weren't coming into work. So there was no one that they deemed them unnecessary. Well, why were they necessary in the first place? If you can just off them, discontinue that experiment and just forget about the whole thing. So it is millions of animals and they're used, as I say, for every full thing. And the manner in which they're kept is abysmal. At the moment, if you look on our website, you can see the University of Washington, how they are keeping monkeys who are tearing out their own hair 
biting their own limbs out of stress, frustration. They're in boxes that are barely bigger than their own bodies, and they turn and turn and turn in circles the way you sometimes see tigers in the zoo pacing back and forth, pacing, because there's nowhere for them to go. There's nothing for them to do. They've lost all control over their own lives. But if you don't care about animals at all, not at all, 95% of drugs that are tested on other species do not work in the human being, which is why if you're watching TV and you see those things that say, you know, if you've been hurt by this drug or you've been hurt by that drug, contact us. We're the law firm that can help you. And it's why you see drugs like Vioxx being taken off the market because they cause heart attack and stroke. They didn't in guinea pigs and then in beagles and then in monkeys, but put them on the human market and bam. So 95% of drugs that test safe on animals do not test safe in human beings. It's old-fashioned, archaic, very crude experiments, and it is cruel. And we're only talking about things that purport to have any bearing on human disease or illness. Most of the stuff that's done in laboratories doesn't. It's show-and-tell experiments. It's psychology experiments. Things like the forced swim test, where for 40 years, little animals have been dropped into beakers of water with sheer sides on the beakers, and they are petrified, of course. They try to swim for their lives, and they swim and they swim and they swim until they can't swim anymore. And somebody ticks a little box to show how long it took for them to give up. And that is supposed to tell us something about depression. Well, I think there are enough people you can go and talk to and examine for depression. And that's been going on, as I say, for years. So today, we've got such marvelous science, really wonderful science. And we have human organs on a chip. Who would have known that 10 years ago? We've got high-speed computers that you can program with human data. You've got non-invasive human medical imagery. You can look inside a human body. You know, there's so much that you have today. We have actually put a lot of money into developing alternatives, a model lung, for example. And we have this research modernization deal, which would help. It's a pathway, a guide for how you can get away from using these old-fashioned, very cruel animal experiments and do something useful that gives you answers that you can actually put into practice. The four chapters of the second section of your book each end with what you can do sections. Obviously, PETA is among the most effective action-based organizations in the world today. Could you share some insights as to what actions you think our listeners can take to most effectively contribute to the cause of animal rights? Sure, Mark. It's a wonderful question. It's my favorite question ever (laughs) because people are so powerful and they don't know it. Every single person, you have a voice, you have your typing fingers, but probably more than anything, you have influence. You have the power of the purse, which means every time you go shopping and you may spend thousands of dollars a year, you have a choice. And it's really our responsibility to know what that choice is. You can buy something cruel or something kind. And that may just sound too general. But you look at all the vegan cookbooks and recipes and tips and everything else out there, 
that shows you how you can have the tastiest meals, the healthiest meals, meals that you will just adore. You can veganize any recipe that you like now. There is, as I say, a taste-alike for every meat or dairy or egg thing. There's even vegan caviar now called caviat. There's a vegan cheese from France called camembert, if you like camembert. There's vegan shrimp and chicken and fish. I'm a fish and chips addict. And there's Gardein fish filet, which is delicious. So, I mean, the world is there for you to grab and you can buy those foods and they won't harm a hair on an animal's head. Or you can wander over to the meat case and there are all these blood and guts things that were carved out of animals who didn't want to die. So don't do it. And please don't buy that idea that some things, like some eggs, they show you a green pasture on the package and they say, oh, these are natural, they're farm-raised, they're free-range. Look at our website. You'll see the videos. This is humane washing, which is just like green washing. Those hens are all going to the same slaughterhouse any other egg-laying chicken goes to. So forget all that. Just get away from it. Try it. Alicia Silverstone has a fabulous cookbook out. Tal Ronan has a fabulous cookbook out. Everybody does for vegan food. Same with clothing. You know, we don't need leather and wool and angora. Uh, We have videos for all those things too. If you really want to lose your lunch, then you can look at uh, alpacas being thrown down onto a platform, their legs bound And then they are sheared while they're screaming and vomiting. Pregnant alpacas being stripped of their fur so it can go into clothing. Anthropology is still selling it and they need to be told not to by every consumer. We're outside protesting. And of course, Kashmir, anything there's an animal involved in, it was stolen from them and we need to stop. Any cosmetic, any household product, Look for the little sign of the leaping bunny, which shows that it wasn't tested on animals, doesn't have any animal ingredients, like a slaughterhouse product, placenta, lanolin, any of these things that were taken from animals in it. That it's pure, that it's clean, that it's something you want to put on your face or in your hair or clean your kitchen floor with. And please speak to your legislators about animals. Never go to an entertainment, like have a parrot on your shoulder in Mexico on the beach, or a monkey, or ride an elephant. They're kept in chains. They're beaten to break them so that they will listen. Otherwise, why wouldn't they walk away? So, yes, I've got tons of practical things, wonderful lists, super um, suggestions of where you can get everything that's fashionable, tasty, um, practical, you name it, including... If you're in school or you're a teacher, we have the synthetic frogs and these high-speed computer programs, so you never have to cut open an animal who is taken from the wild. So yeah, there are a million things everyone can do. Just remember that you are such a powerful force for good. I've been a vegetarian since 1993 and a vegan since 2014 when Cowspiracy came out which is an earth-shattering, life-changing movie. And even I am in disbelief as to how many vegan options there are today. It's, it's almost unbelievable as to how quickly things seem to be changing. Although, to stress, so much more needs to change. We've barely even begun, but even still, the change is significant. 
I would encourage all listeners to follow PETA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, wherever. They share news, but also petitions. Also, if you're over 30 and still use email, subscribe to their e-newsletter. Just Google PETA e-news, and the first link should be to the page where you can subscribe. Again, they email out petitions that you can take action on to make yourself heard to government and industry figures, as well as other opportunities and ideas for ways to take action. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you a somewhat more personal question. Your book has a number of heroes in it. The essayist Michel de Montaigne, who in the 16th century argued that cruelty to animals was wrong. The philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who in the late 18th century famously stated, quote, the question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer, end quote. The Irish politician Colonel Richard Martin, who advocated for legislation to protect horses in the face of howls of laughter from his colleagues, and later founded the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in 1824. Henry Berg, who founded the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in 1866. The Irish suffragist Francis Power Cobb, who founded the National Anti-Vivisection Society in 1875. More recently, we have philosophers such as Peter Singer and Tom Regan, the vegan fashion designer Stella McCartney, Dr. Neil Bernard, the founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. It's a fairly long list, but I, I think it's important to name names to honor their contributions. And of course, you also, with the books you have written, the speeches you have given, and in founding PETA, have taken your own place in this history. There's a famous saying, generally attributed to Isaac Newton, who did say it, although the saying is older than that, quote, if I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants, end quote. Can you talk to us briefly about any sense of gratitude or admiration or inspiration that you have for your predecessors? Well, I think we are all to be enormously grateful for the efforts of anyone who has seen an injustice and spoken up. They don't have to be famous. There are a lot of unsung heroes. But of course, we know so many wonderful people who have said, this has to stop. And we are enormously beholden to them for the state of our society having progressed, even though it's got a long, long way to go, but having progressed to the point where it is now, when we have recognized at least that the color of skin, the gender of a person, the age of a person, the ability of a, of a person, that these are not reasons to institutionalize them or put them in chains or deny them the vote or whatever it is. So we've come a long way. For me, Sojourner Truth is my absolute hero. And I took uh, in the very beginning and always have a lot of strength from her. She was a black woman at a time when being black and being a woman meant that you had no voice at all. And she would march into meetings that were all white men. And she would set up her little soapbox and she would say to them, you know, you're very mean, basically, if I'm paraphrasing, if you don't give me my little half measure full. She was saying, if you don't think I'm smart, you don't think I count for much, just give me some little thing. Give me my half measure full. And they would throw stones at her. They would jeer at her. Her boarding house was once set on fire. And she kept going because she knew she was right. And I said to her, well, it doesn't take much in this day and age to speak up. What's going to happen to you if you overcome that little embarrassment or that 
uh, you know, uncomfortable feeling. Imagine all the good you'll do if all of us said something when we see something wrong and said, excuse me, could I suggest that you do this instead of that? Because, and we educated somebody. It would open their eyes because people had to open my eyes and I'm grateful to them all. And so just the average person who says something, who does something, who educates another, who feeds someone. And let me say, Mark, I left out. We will help anybody with anything to make them have an easier journey toward total kindness. We have a vegan starter kit. You can download it. It's online. It's free. We have a new thing, which is a vegan starter kit bag, which comes with all sorts of vegan goodies you may never have tried that we're uh, offering for sale on our mall. It gets shipped to you. It has vegan mayonnaise, vegan egg replacer, vegan salad dressing, snacks, vegan chocolate, and all sorts of stuff. So whatever we can do for you to help you on your journey, whoever's listening, that would be marvelous. We're here, peter.org. That's true of PETA, and it's also true of myself and probably any vegan that any of our listeners know. We feel very strongly about our, the moral urgency of, of our cause of veganism, and we're happy to discuss it, and we're happy to help in any way anyone who is interested in learning more or perhaps moving in that direction. Ingrid, your book is a wonderful introduction to recent remarkable discoveries about animals and some revolutionary new ways to show them compassion. As James Cromwell, the actor and animal rights activist, has said of animal kind, quote, this book takes you by the hand and leads you, enchanted, into the wonderful world of diverse animal life, end quote. Indeed it does. Thank you so much for writing it, for your time and insights today and for all that you have done for our non-human cohabitants on this earth. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, and all the best to you, Mark. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Ingrid Newkirk about her 2020 book, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. It's a wonderful book, a compassionate and empathetic book, a fascinating and delightful book, and an important one. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode and for all my episodes is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time. <laughs>